Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast... We talk about manifestos, everything you could possibly want to know about what is in them. And if you enjoy that, make sure to check out Deep Dive. Which is a sister podcast of us run by Lord Wood, Stuart Wood and Ian Leslie. And that has now got its own spin-off section. You might have heard clips of it on our podcast before, but please do go to iTunes and search for Deep Dive and then you can hear some really great in-depth discussions of terrorism, of um, media bias and other subjects that you know are just too big for us to cover in proper depth on our podcast. And while you're on iTunes, make sure to leave us a review, unless it's a bad review. We, we don't want one of those. Exactly. Leave only nice reviews that say nice things about how good my You Ask Us jingle is and how much you like that, and Stephen is a big party pooper for saying that it's embarrassing and cheesy. And now on your super balanced New Statesman podcast... Let's talk about the Tory manifesto. What is it? It's um, forward... Sorry. Yeah, great. Do you know what I so wanted to have that as I came down the aisle at my wedding? Tell me that wouldn't be amazing to have somebody walking down a wedding dress and you just heard that. It would be pretty cool. Anyway, maybe my third wedding I can have that. Stephen, the Tory manifesto. Um, I just remember that Jonathan listens to this podcast. There will be no third wedding. I'm very happy. Everything is great. He's wonderful. Um, but the Tory manifesto. Might, but, you know, he, he might die before you. Oh, thanks, Stephen. That's I'm really... Just, you know, and like... you know what? That would be bad if he died before me, but he had dementia first because we would have to sell uh, our house to pay for the care costs. Yeah. So, that segue. so, yeah. So there are lots of things in the manifesto. Some of them are kind of fairly obviously crude bits of politics, which we'll get to. The interesting one is the thing about care, which I had to read several times to make sure they were actually proposing they would do what they are actually saying they will actually do. I think everyone's response to that was kind of, hang on a minute, is this progressive or not? As you had to kind of work through the various options. If this makes sense, right, like... I think it's now the best way to see it is is an inheritance tax lottery which is that there is essentially now a very high rate of inheritance tax on anybody who owns a house that is worth over 100,000. So basically anybody who doesn't live, you know, out, you know, in, in sort of south of the wash. Um, and if it, it is now, you know, a much higher inheritance tax if your parents die of dementia rather than keel over from a heart attack. That's how I'm thinking of it. It's a really interesting example of what you're kind of like, okay, so the, the way you've chosen to pay for this is, is incredibly progressive in terms of the people who will pay and the problem of inherited asset wealth but 
the policy lever you're pulling is not progressive. And it's quite a weird... It's a bit like when, say, a media organisation rules out a paywall and they decide to do everything but a paywall, including things which look a lot like a paywall. Um, and it's basically like someone sat down and gone, we can't have an, an, a death tax. But obviously, in terms of how you pay for the social care crisis... Unfortunately, a death tax is the only most game, would rather, game in town. Yeah, right? well, yeah. The, the most time that you can take huge amounts of asset wealth pe- off people does tend to be easier to do that after they are dead. Yeah, and so it's like someone sat down and it's, it's they've gone like create create effectively a death tax without it being a death tax. Here's what we've got now. It it, it would go some way in my view to a helping to wean us off our addiction to. Uh, the property market and just yeah that that whole kind of start yeah that kind of what you might call the, the british disease of, of of the obsession with the home um although of course the missing thing uh in the manifesto is uh, it's not enough to build homes we, we have a rental market based on the idea that renting is something you do in like a crazy period in your life in your like early 20s um, we, we, we'd need a, a stronger and more pro-tenant. Um. Yeah, and one that acknowledges that actually if people are going to rent into their 30s and 40s, you need to, yeah, it's not four people sharing a house because they're 20. It's, you know, maybe a young family. And um, so, but yeah, so, well, yeah, so let's, let's just, let, okay, so I'm going to get this straight in my head. So what happens with the care tax is that, so Andrew Dillnock proposed that you would essentially protect a level of assets. So people wouldn't, you know, there'd be a chunk that you had to pay and above that everything would be safe. And there's been a lot of argument for the last couple of years about where exactly that cap would be. This doesn't have a cap, which is the difference, right? It, yeah, it doesn't have a cap. But instead, it is that you are liable for all care costs correct me if i'm wrong yes until your assets reduce down to 100k to, to 100k so it's sort of a kind of intriguing version of labor's you know we won't raise taxes for anybody over 80k right that uh, sorry won't we raise tax for anybody under 80k which is there are two very different ways of reporting it one is hooray 95 percent of people won't have their taxes raised the second way of reporting it is tough tax you know cuts on on high earners this is either hooray you get to keep 100 grand's worth of assets or boo you can't, can't keep anything more than 100 grams of assets yeah i mean it, it is one of those things that i would not be able to quote the males splash if this was a corbyn policy on here without losing our universal rating right it is weirdly it's basically what andy burnham was proposing minus the things as a payment mechanism obviously labor was proposing a, a national care service as a payment mechanism minus the concessions labor had thrown in to make it slightly more palatable to the Conservative Party in 2010. And I think that's the... And there's lots of other stuff in the manifesto to talk about. I think the really interesting thing about the care uh, thing is uh, I've talked to some of the the kind of 2017 target seat uh, list, and Downing Street has not really controlled who gets selected at all, as far as I can tell. There are lots of people who are a lot closer to kind of sort of economically and social liberalism. There are a lot of people who are kind of traditional Shire Tories. Now, obviously, there are some issues where... But they're quite Brexity, aren't they? I was talking to somebody at the BBC who said they've done an analysis that and it shows that they are quite... But then I don't ever know how you unpick the Brexitiness because, you know, Cameron said he was a Eurosceptic when he got selected, right? It's just a kind of thing you have to say to get selected. Being quite Brexity in the Conservative Party is a bit like... I'm trying to think of something... It's sort of a bit tridenty, isn't it, in a way? It's a kind of a, a sort of test of where you are in the project yeah exactly kind of the the bulk of labor mps don't care all that much about trident one way or the other but 
that it is a kind of cultural signifier. But you've spoken something interesting in the manifesto, which is that if there's a, the, we're going to pay for the divorce bill, right? Yeah, I mean, so from the, this is from the EU. Yeah, so 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 Downing Street has done a very good like the kind of weird thing about writing about Downing Street's Brexit negotiations is it is kind of like they exist in two separate universes. There there are there's kind of the tone and the kind of coverage and the messages that Downing Street sends out to the Which press. Is basically, ooh, boo, we hate you, Jean Claude Juncker, yeah. you bastard, we're coming for you. And you and you kind of go, oh, so going to crash out without a deal then and then there's the of course we'll pay our obligation and we'd quite like to stay in science and we'll we'll pay for the things we stay into right and and you kind of think okay right so basically what we've said is we will pay through the nose they're kind of finessing away the european court of justice the words european court of justice do not appear in the manifesto which my instinct is but we're out of the customs union right clarified on that But my instinct is the average uh, British voter, regardless of whether or not they voted Remain or Leave, and this is what all of the polling suggests as well, would basically be very happy with a relationship where we we basically had a Norway-style deal, but whereas obviously Norway's exemption is about fish, and ours would be about immigration, where we basically followed most EU rules, continued to pay quite a lot of money in, uh, but people living in Britain had fewer rights to go to uh, go live and work in Europe and, and vice versa. So politically, that feels quite doable in terms of the country. Of course, there's this other factor Theresa May has to negotiate, and it's called the Conservative Party and the Conservative Press. Now, obviously, at the moment, as we've seen with the care home coverage... They love her! Yeah. But that is partly because they have a... Uh, a an Labour, election to win? An election to win. So they're in full-on loyalty mode. They have a Labour Party who frightens them even more in terms of their own interests, right? And she's new and she's not going anywhere. But let's assume that the the kind of pressure on wages from the the falling pound continues, which feels likely, and the economic cycle means you have a slowdown anyway. And then in 2019, they turn around, as they're clearly planning to do, and go, yeah, you know when I said that I would be bloody difficult? Actually, what I meant was, I'm going to pay the divorce bill. You think, oh, that's going to be interesting. And I thought the other thing that was interesting from your morning email this morning, which I has now topped 10,000 subscribers. It's yeah. very exciting. Yeah, more people than ever are hearing from you at some point in the morning. Um, was the idea that, you know, actually, there was a lot of talk about the kind of big cost of Labour's manifesto. But if they really do get that net immigration target down, then that is a, a huge uncosted hole in the middle of Theresa May's manifesto. Oh, yeah. I mean, the 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 OBR estimated that we would have to borrow six million more uh, with the with immigration. And it's not it's not just also the amount that, that we borrow. As you lower immigration, other other things become more expensive, right? There are a lot of universities whose finances are kept afloat by a high paying cadre of, of foreign students um, who are going to be included in the total who are going to be which, which everyone apart from Theresa May thinks is cuckoo right it's even in the Tory party so the kind of interesting divide among civil servants who obviously do not on the whole have a high opinion of Theresa May is that if you're an optimist who doesn't like Theresa May and you work in the civil servant you basically go she went native in the home office all of the yeah this is a direct as I said all of the thick racists in the home office which is the way that other other departments will occasionally talk about the ho- the home office, which I don't think is is fair to the people who work there, but it does give you an idea of how people There's see them. There's quite a lot of hostility going. in Whitehall. Yeah. Okay, I get um, that. There's this idea that 
at the Home Office, she absorbed their idea that they could meet the target if only Downing Street stopped letting the various other departments get their, get their way and go, oh, but my immigrants don't count. Obviously now she is Prime Minister. She effectively has a situation where she is significantly more politically powerful than her, her, her Chancellor, her Home Secretary, her Education Secretary, or her, her Base uh, Secretary, all of whom you would usually expect to be pro-immigration counterweight. But I just don't understand it in the sense of the fact that when you talk to people who are, you know, UKIPI uh, on on doorsteps and stuff like that, it is not, you know, Chinese engineering students that are the the, the flavour of immigrant that they're upset about, right? Who come over for a couple of years to do a degree. It is people that they feel who have, you know, brought a whole family over with them, or you know, the Polish seasonal workers that mean that you know there are whole factories where nobody speaks English. No one kind of goes, I'm really upset about, you know, the fact that this postgraduate course is is full of, you know, people from the Indian subcontinent. But there, there is a feeling, or at least there was a feeling, um, you know, I'm talking primarily about historical uh, debates when she was at the Home Office, that there was a strong feeling that the, the, the team around May did not believe that, for example, if you were a foreign student at, say, the University of East London... There was this idea that that meant you were probably a bogus student, which obviously is kind of deeply freighted in snobbery about million plus institutions. But, but basically, I think the, the interesting kind of thing to watch out for in this manifesto is either the, either the government will, will not keep its promise and won't even try, or it feels more likely to me you will have a situation where an ex-polytechnic, um, gets into quite serious financial difficulty midway through the parliament because a lot of ex-polys um the the way that you you meet your access requirements and you are good in terms of the grants you offer to domestic students and you make the sums add up is you have a lot of international students but they are the people who are really going to be under the the cosh they obviously aren't going to get much research funding you know, yeah i mean you i've know. got you know my uh, second alma mater which is city university in london you know runs a very well respected journalism course but it does also run a lot of courses for foreign students i think it's just going to make you know for a lot of people it'll make the sums much harder to add up never mind the fact that there's also a problem in the staffing side right which is i'm trying to think it was which university was it has basically put everybody at risk of redundancy because of uh, uh of needing to make budget cuts already what else was in the manifesto sovereign wealth funds no uh, i can't i just please can we un- oh, go on go on okay go on I- i'm here right tell me for, you know, tell me in one sentence about sovereign wealth funds we're in favor of them and we will have some so i think the the interesting kind of um golden thread of the manifesto right is there's lots of stuff which from a center-left perspective you kind of you know it's like what teachers call the um Sugar sandwich. Oh, they're very good for the iTunes yeah. rating. I think you could just say like the poo sandwich. The which poo is, sandwich, right. You start off good, then you hit the but kind of, you know, you work really hard in class and that's nice. You know, unfortunately you are thick, but, you know, that's not, doesn't necessarily hold people back in life. Yeah, so there's an awful lot of what you, of, of that kind of sort of, we will have a sovereign wealth fund, but we'll have some fairly heroic assumptions about the cash dividend of, in, uh, available through fracking we're in favor of of you know kind of nice things with the big underlying thing that if the promise on immigration is met and the promises on the deficit are met 
Now, of course, repeated observers of the government might go, but of course they won't be. But if they are, then suddenly everything else starts to, the the underlying assumptions that make everything else add up start to look very rocky. What are the other interesting things in There's there? There's some very tough language about kind of businesses. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before, about kind of intervention that is not a kind of libertarian Tory, you know. I sort of would like to imagine what Daniel Hannan's face looks like this morning. That might be quite amusing. It's like, oh, you won Brexit. But, you know, the Tory party has now gone in a very different direction to the one that, you, you know, your wing of it kind of uh, but, embraces. But the weird thing, again, to kind of come back to the candidate selection, it has and it hasn't. And although she... So she is incredibly popular. I, I don't get it myself. Uh, but sh- people really like her. As, as I'm sure you, you could tell well, when you're we in have a, we have a piece coming out tomorrow which will hopefully explain that, so stay tuned. But, you know, people do really like her, and some of the people I'm talking to in this new intake get that. However, the other massive subtext that will exist, you know, then obviously you see some kind of Remainer saying it, you're going to you see some Conservatives quietly saying it, isn't basically Theresa May is holding a referendum on Jeremy Corbyn and pretending that the result of that referendum is an endorsement to, of whatever ideas... Yeah, I think that's a really interesting under um, discussed point, which is that there is a still a slight sniffiness about the people feeling she hasn't really been tested. You know, that kind of, yeah, kind of crudely sort of be like a banana could win against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, And I think that will mean that she won't get quite as much respect as you would expect somebody who has that thumping a majority to to care. Yeah, and and the interesting is if if say the polls are wrong and or and if it turns out that this this Labour rise uh, is not the kind of historical effect we'd expect to see at this point in Parliament, but is a genuine uh, uptick, that might cause some soul searching on the centre left. It will not cause people on the centre right to go, oh, actually Corbyn was in touch with something. We we got lucky here. People will go, oh, but you, you ran on this status stuff. You couldn't even beat Jeremy Corbyn by all that much. Therefore, why should we do it? In many ways, she's this interesting composite of John Major and Margaret Thatcher. Major's problem was obviously his parliamentary party was selected and shaped around the idea they would be loyal Thatcherites. He would very much not, he very much was not one. And then he won a smaller majority than, than she did. She is going to win a bigger majority than Cameron did, but there will be more. Uh, and again, it might be that I've talked to a really weird soil sample of, of conservative uh, parliamentary candidates so far. I'm trying to talk to more and to get a, a better shape of what they think. But she will weirdly have a bigger majority, but there's a lot of Cameroons in there and a lot of people who I would say were not necessarily going to be loyal to any conservative leader and will very much have kind of what we think of as core conserv- core modern conservative kind of softly Thatcherite principles so there are going to be lots of interesting problems and of course there is still a commitment to this idea there there will still be some public sector cuts although the strategic thing that is there is they have got rid of the changes to the fairer funding formula this is the school funding yeah so which is what i used the word there it's not fairer it's just a funding formula change (laughs) but that was becoming a a good thing also it was it was something that had featured in my new favorite source of uh subtweets about theresa may Evening Standard Leader columns written by George Osborne. The Evening Standard Leader columns actually just fill me with with rage. So he did one about, oh, the migration target is bad, everyone thinks it's a bad idea. Well, Janan Ganesh wrote in his um, bi- oh, biography, biography of George of, Osborne, of George yeah. Osborne yeah. oh, you know, George has a brilliant sense of what people think. You know, the welfare cap and the, the, the immigration target were both his ideas. And it's just like, well, you can't have it both ways. And also just... <laughs> 
It's just like one of those things where, like, you were the second man in that government, therefore everything it did that was bad was kind of your fault. I don't want to read leaders associated with you condemning it, right? I, you know, kind of a period of silence would be welcome. Yeah, but I just think this is, you know, this is my theory. This is the year without shame, um, you know. And if you just look about the way that the different ways that Theresa May is spent essentially doing Milibandite policies is reported completely differently. I just think the left is overly hampered by a sense of not wanting to be hypocritical or you know say things that are unfair there is just this kind of you know much imagine how blissfully simple your life must be that you your only test about whether or not you're going to say something is a good idea or not is because somebody that you support has said it it must be a lot like religion right it must just be like you've abdicated responsibility for all of that right okay i'm not gonna have to think through these issues on an individual case-by-case basis she said it i'm in favor of it it's on a tablet of stone although tragically not an edstone and there we will leave it Let's talk about the Labour Manifesto, which is out this week. If you had to give it a mark out of 10, what mark would you give it? Marks out of 10, see what I did there? Or you give it a Keynes out of 10 if you want. Unfortunately, I do see what you've done there, and I'm full of despair and anger. Um, it, so it's always difficult, I, I guess, kind of... Because the, the tricky thing with, with assessing um, politicians in general, and manifestos in particular, is... There are kind of three axes to score it on, right? I guess some people want a score of, you know, how to win a election winnability. Um, in, in my view, um, the policy platform you put forward in the short campaign doesn't really matter all that much. Your, your tone and your kind of... I mean, yeah, they, yeah, no one reads manifestos. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So, so kind of I, 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 I disregard that element entirely. Then there's kind of the, am I scoring it against my ideal manifesto, in which case I think I'd probably give it maybe a six, or am I kind of scoring it against the stated aims of, of, um, of, you know, of the leadership and the shadow treasury team, in which case you kind of give it, I don't know, maybe a, an eight. Uh, and then am I scoring it against its stated ability to be um, attack-proof um, from uh, the Conservatives and their media allies? And then you get into this complicated thing where you kind of go, well in a vacuum, bits of it are more defensible than they seem because you would have assumed in an ideal world the Shadow Treasury would have would have done a, a, a better a better job of... Uh, costing it. Of, no, like. no, not... Uh, to be honest, like, a, a lot of the costings are, are fine. Some of them are more optimistic. They're kind of what I would describe as government costings, right? So if you're in, in the government, well, until George Osborne invented the OBR and actually the Tories, because they're the right and you can get away with anything if you're on the right um you you mostly can get away with going here's an optimistic figure if you're in opposition particularly if you are a labor opposition you will never ever be able to do that so you always kind of need to sort of undercount where possible so some of it is a is a bit overly optimistic but their big problem is that the 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 level of explanation even to loyalists in the shadow cabinet let alone journalists of how the fiscal rule works has not been what it should be, which is why you had all of that kind of, oh, but where's the money going to come from for the nationalisations? Yeah, I mean, I I'm, I think I'm probably a bit more upbeat about it than you are. I, I like it. Like, I remember, I, you know, I've said all along that um, 
despite my reservations about the Corbyn project, what I hoped it would do is at least overcome some of that kind of grim managerial kind of, you know, just one more heave Milibandism. Um, and, you know, there is some genuinely kind of new thinking in there and some, some stuff that I found quite interesting. And my reservations about it are a bit that it is a bit, I worry it is a bit the change.org manifesto, right? It does have the fingerprints on it of some campaigning groups and then just sort of whack this in and whack that in. Um, uh, so uh, I'll try and give you an example. Well, no, I, I, I was going to say I would give you an example, but it'd be horrendously complicated and everyone apart from me would fall asleep. But I will leave it there. But I think so bees is an interest. So the bees thing is, is whoa, very... Whoa, whoa, the bees are incredibly important. If, if you had the bee lecture because the bees are our future. Do you not watch that Doctor Who episode? No, so I've actually kind of fallen off the Doctor Who wagon, but I think that's a conversation for another time. Um, but the bees are our future. I mean, I get that the bees are really important, but the fact that the bees are... So you, when when I've been talking to kind of people involved in the process, one, because the overwhelming bulk of Labour's professional class, right, whether it is Corbynite or Corbyn sceptic, does not expect to win the election. So the kind of process of getting into the manifesto has mostly been... Sure, if you want that, why? Why the, you know, why not? So, to take for example a policy which I think has a lot of merit behind it, which is the look, we are not going to sell arms to Saudi while they are using them in the Yemen, right? Now, in normal circumstances, Labour's affiliated unions with workers in the defence industry would have gone with like a merit moratorium or an inquiry or or some kind of delaying process so we can negotiate for our members' jobs. Which when that came out, lots of people were saying, oh, we'll do that. Then they got in the meeting and they kind of all sat down and went, yeah, but we don't think we're going to win, so why are we bothering to have this fight? Which is one of the reasons why, so obviously there is not a commitment to ending the welfare freeze in there. And one of the main reasons for that is no one was really lobbying for it because everyone kind of assumed it would be in there. And obviously it's because it's not a campaign issue because everyone kind of assumes it's so, for example, the changes to the school funding formula weren't in there either. But the reason why that got put in is the overwhelming majority of Labour MPs are campaigning on in their constituencies. So there was kind of a, a lot of people going, oh, wait, hang about. There needs to be explicit language on this. The interesting shift, though, of course, is the fact that uh, Labour has got the most right-wing immigration policy it's had basically since the 70s. Well, I, I was going to say that I actually think probably in political terms given if you're going to judge it by Jeremy Corbyn's sort of stated aims in his project is you know it's not a europhile project that actually conceding that freedom of freedom of movement is over and the single market is over is probably the right call well yeah i think that's that's kind of the thing about the difficulty with with scoring it right then there are lots of things i would give quite a low mark to like the free movement stuff but yeah J- jeremy is is and always has been a eurosceptic and his instincts are quite his, protectionist his as well. Are, yeah, and, and in terms of some of the policy options, when you're not subject to the single market rules, it makes sense to to leave it. So that bit kind of makes sense. Okay, well, look, let me. I will give you my, my wonk point, okay, because this is about the only forum in which I'll be able to air this, because literally, apart from you and Silent India, nobody can stop me. But um, so in the section about LGBT rights, they say they would support um, something that came out of the Women and Equalities Committee recommendation, which is that you would change the Equalities Act, the protected characteristics, so you know the Equalities Act sets up various protected characteristics you can't discriminate on, from gender reassignment, which is currently a two-year process, there's no requirement for any medical or hormonal treatment, but it is, uh, you have to pay a fee and you have to see a panel of, of doctors to get a gender recognition of it. Now that is, there is a remission on the fee for people on low incomes. 
but they want to change that to gender identity. And I think that is a problem. It's something that trans campaigners have argued for and basically will say that anybody who opposes it is a, a bigot. But I do think there are reasons that we um, have ideas about identity that have to be formalised, right? You can't identify as British, for example. There has to be a formal process you go through to gain citizenship. And the idea is that it should be fair. You know, it shouldn't be based around... You know, race or language states, although unfortunately now it is based around um, earnings, which is something else that Labour would want to um, adjust that kind of you have to earn X amount to kind of get come as a spouse or whatever into the country. But there is, that, you know, creating that on essentially on gender identity, which is something that literally nobody can define, right? It's an innate essence that people are supposed to have. You have then created a system that is incredibly open to abuse. Now, I think that the current system is overly bureaucratic and there are definitely steps we could take to make that easier for people. And there are definitely problems in terms of NHS referrals taking a really long time for people. But to switch that to a system that basically someone... You know, uh, and then this is going to sound like a really outrageous example. It's going to upset people, but you genuinely have lots of people who are currently in prison. There are sex offenders in prison who want to be moved from a male prison to a female prison. And at the moment, you have to say, okay, you can do that if you show, demonstrate a serious intention and go through a, a quasi medical process. However, if that becomes a thing that you can tick on a form, that moves a, a report, an important safeguard that I think both trans and non trans women would really appreciate. So that's the kind of thing where I think that. They have just had lots of lobbying from a particular group and they have gone, oh, we want to be on the right side of history. This is really progressive and put it in. And I don't mean to be rude, but I doubt very much that Jeremy Corbyn or Seamus Milne have really thought about the feminist ramifications of that. End my rant. See, I've got that off my chest in the podcast Safe Space, which is probably the only space I could tell anyone about it without them literally running away from me. I mean, I'm quite literally tied to this desk. So, um, I mean, by the headphones, she hasn't like tied me up. That would be really weird. But yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go through the the manifesto, sort yeah. of kind of not quite page by page. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but We're not um, Richard Bergen, Stephen. But yeah, so kind of the economic stuff. I mean, George, who's obviously not here, was getting very excited because he has never seen a ta- an increase on income tax. He, he doesn't like. I mean, I assume you're also quite into that because you're all weird soft left commies. Um, I actually think that the income tax rise is, is a problem when we aren't so bad at taxing wealth. I think that most people, I think it was Paul Johnson, I first wrote a piece in the um, FT about you know the fact that most people's idea of whether or not they're rich is based around assets as well as income. And actually, there is a real problem about the fact that we are, you know, we're taxing income because basically because you can see it and we're really bad at taxing wealth. I don't really see why somebody, you know, there are people on uh, 80,000 plus, you know, like, Head teachers of multi academy trusts, or you know, GP sort of who's who own their own surgery, that kind of thing, who I think probably have earned that money more than I would say somebody with a buy to let rental income has, or you know, somebody who has inherited a lot of money and invested it in property. Yeah, but I guess, and this is where like kind of my sort of never that suppressed like spending too much time with either treasury or brown era treasury wonks comes to the fore, which is the your taxation system is partially based on how fair things are, and that should obviously be your guiding principle, but with the overriding caveat of can you actually find, locate, and successfully take people's money. I quite like it just because I think as a point of hygiene, it's a bit strange that there isn't a tax band between 45k, i.e. a job which in most industries you're like, okay, so you're at the top of your manager, so you are a divisional store manager, you are senior a manager, senior level, manager, yeah. you're a head, you know, kind of all the way, and then basically there's, there are 150 no grand, which is what, like 2% of the country yeah. are on that, you know, that's basically you work in the city or you're a CEO or... 
And in terms of sort of finessing that sort of slight unfairness in the in the system around income tax, eighty or ninety, I think, makes sense as a a kind of stopping rate. Um, although the interesting thing is, of course, the intersection of all of that with tuition fees. In the, the weird missing bit about the which obviously is the most expensive outlay in the manifesto is the 11 billion to scrap tuition fees. Now, obviously, the thing that no one really talks about about tuition fees is they are a marginal income. They, are, they, 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 you pay them through PayYE. So any conversation about marginal rate, both if you want to get rid of tuition fees and if you want to defend them, has got to be about what they mean for the marginal rate of someone paying them. So there is a lot of um, media oxygen given to the plight of people at... Uh, 10k where because the Tories needed to get some revenue from somewhere but they didn't want to break their promise to increase income tax they got rid of the threshold uh, which means that basically you hit 100k and then suddenly you're you, for every pound you earn oh, between 100 and 110,000 you pay what like something like 92 pence of it goes in yeah. tax right because your personal allowance gets with, withdrawn yeah I, so I, I think that I think that's a reasonable point I also think the other thing I, I like the look of I haven't really had time to look into it properly is the idea that any um, company that plays vast multiples of, of the average salary has to pay a fee and that's sort of payable in the employer side because that seems to me the right place to do it. If you can afford to pay, you know, if if for reasons of business competition you have to pay your board of directors X amount, then actually, yeah, in that case, if you can pay them, if you can afford to pay them that much for business reasons, you can afford to pay a, a little bit extra to chip in to, for my hospital tar. Yeah. Um, the nationalisation stuff, I mean, I can sort of take or leave it, to be honest. Uh, I think... I would divide up different things that are. I would divide up things that are quasi monopolies from things that really are essentially monopolies. I mean, energy supply—it's the same energy that comes into your house. They don't give you extra good energy if you pay more money. Whereas trains, when we had the long trains conversation before about some you know different routes and public level of public subsidy that's needed and, and that kind of adjustment. But at least some franchise op- operators are definitely better and more efficient at running their services than others, right? You can at least have a kind of some competition through that franchise system, whereas there is no way really that all the different gas people compete. They're not giving you different gas. No, although some of them are doing more environmentally, blah, 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 all of that, that kind of thing. Um, The energy nationalisation is actually quite interesting because it's not really a nationalisation. It's the creation of a new state-backed actor in the energy market. So it's it's a bit different, and I would sort of remove that. Yeah, in terms of the transport stuff, obviously, as we've said before, um, as someone wrote in with a nice new word that I don't know how to pronounce, orthogonal, but it's kind of it's entirely orthogonal to the question of uh, of of. Yeah, whether you nationalise or privatise your tr- transport system is is quite different to the questions of how you run it and change it. Yeah, and I was very into the you know Adonis idea that you had essentially the same thing—a state back actor who bids against private companies—and that's how you, you kind of gradually take back stuff into ownership. I mean, the East Coast Mainline was running better by pretty much every measure when it was being run by a, a, a publicly backed uh, company. I think buses are quite different because my so my assumption as as a you know one of those like boring anti-car people is that if you had a better cheaper more well-subsidized bus market outside of london car usage would drop and buses would become profitable outside of london and then at that point maybe it's a better deal for the state to just let other people run them subject to strong sort of guidelines um but at the moment to make our bus system work better 
you're kind of going to be running a loss-making service where you put subsidies in to get more people to use buses. If you have a private provider and you are giving them money to not turn a profit, you, you kind of know that the profit motive means some of that subsidy will be skimmed off. So you might as well keep that in, in-house until it, it's running at a state where there is a value to a private provider. One of the brilliant things of, of sort of house cleaning in the manifesto is extending the Freedom of Information Act to private providers involved in the in the state sector. Yeah, it I mean, this no is something that John Elledge said to me, you know, he said about the, the idea about outsourcing. It's not necessarily always about cost, you know, it's about accountability. It's about how excellent it is for Minister X to be able to say, oh, these people have really let you down. I'm definitely going to be reviewing that contract rather than, oh, I've really let you down. I probably should resign, shouldn't I? Um, so, I, yeah, I really like that. Uh, one elephant in the room before we finish, I think we probably have to aggress. How much of the manifesto do you think is written with an eye on Labour positioning internally, if you see what I mean. So, um, you know, when I talked about, I, th- I think it's very strange to prioritise repealing tuition fees over ending the freeze to w- working age benefits, because I think that, um, we can go into long arguments about about tuition fees, but they haven't actually caused a plunge in the number of low-income people going to university, which is what everybody worried. So it wouldn't be my first choice of somewhere to spend £11 billion. And people kind of came back at me with, well, you know, this is about Jeremy Corbyn wanting to be able to shore up his internal vote after June the 8th. So obviously a large chunk of this leadership election, sorry, this general election... Is a preview leadership is, election. Is, yeah, is is about um, the the leadership election that that is widely expected to follow it. However, to be honest, the reason why that's in there is it is fairly central to the over the overwhelming project, which is you know one distilled into very crude planks. One universal uh, provision is innately preferable for the most part to specific prov- uh, provision. And the and the the kind of presence of what you might call marketization is a, a, a an, an ill in of itself. And if you if you want to have a universal payment and you're concerned about marketization, qua marketization, actually the kind of big pressing issue in the public realm is tuition fees. Although obviously the slight problem now with tuition fees, you have this weird thing where you notionally have like a market fee, but obviously there is no competition because no one charges less because. Why would you? Because you'll basically be going, oh, we're not as good as the others, right? And, and it will never happen, right? It, it is just a, it is just a massive tax cliff edge for people on either seventeen or twenty-one k, depending on whether or not you're a Plan A or Plan B uh, repayment student. Um, so no, I don't think that is what the tuition fees thing is about. I think it's fairly central to the project. I also think that the people who think that it's part of this myth that the average uh, person who voted for Jeremy Corbyn is young. The mm. average person who's in the Labour Party, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, I'm describing people who've paid twenty-five or three pounds as in the Labour Party. But the average person who picks the Labour leader is not young, right? They are, yeah, you know, they work in the public sector. They're kind of, you know, forty-five to to sixty something. They, you know, um, so the fees thing does matter a bit because people are concerned about the fact that they didn't have to. A lot of people in, the, you know, the average Labour member is the first in their family to go to university. Well, that also, the average Labour member is um, an ABC1 graduate right now yeah. as well. That is that is another thing that you don't hear a lot of people talking about the big cuts to FE colleges uh, that have happened over the last couple of years, yeah. for example. Although there is quite a good offer on FE. In no, the- no, I mean, and, yeah, and that's true. But you know what I mean? As a, as a subject of kind of something that's got a kind of coalition of people angry about it and campaigning on it, actually, you know, people who are graduates 20 years ago and people who are at university now, there is a kind of natural bond between them. 
Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Indeed. Um, so there was a poll out uh, last week that put Labour on 32% of the vote. Um, their average is currently about 29%. And... Uh, well, actually, in our rolling average on June 2017, our elections microsite, uh, it has now uh, totted up to 304 Which would be exactly the same as Ed Miliband got in 2015. So the question is, are the polls right so I have I have some scepticism about the polls. I'm not going to lie. Um, I having been out in two marginal constituencies and been uh, and 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 heard people's real qualms about about Labour and voting Labour and what that means. I have I have scepticism, but I also think there is a weird thing that um, the Tories are running an election campaign based on the premise it's incredibly close. And it's not. And I think that's a kind of effect that I'm really interested in. So are those coalition of chaos, which they seem to taper down a bit, ads, just completely flapping in the wind because they just do not connect at all in the way that the Ed Miliband is in Nicola Sturgeon's pockets ads really did last time? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with the coalition of chaos is that no one knew that Theresa May was going to call this election. She decided over the weekend, she talked to a very small group of people and the coalition of chaos is something they have polling on and they know does hit that, oh, will we run by Scotland, uh, Labour brews, right? So it was very much a kind of, okay, until we've worked out what the specific message about this candidate and this campaign is, what's the thing that we can just pump out that won't hurt? Which is why the coalition of chaos thing has vanished. I mean, I don't necessarily... I kind of think, ignore the kind of what, what have I heard on the doorstep, what are my experiences campaigning thing. If, you knew, if, if I knew nothing about politics, but I just knew stuff about the history of polling companies, and you had, didn't, I didn't know what the Labour poll number was, you'd go, yeah, it's probably wrong by four. It's pro- like they are probably, it is probably four points more than Labour ought to get. That was true basically in every election since the 70s, with the exception of 2010. The, the average poll error on Le- uh, is Which, for Labour to be overestimated a, by 3.6%. Claim a, a, a margin of error of three points does mean that they are always essentially, by their own standards, wrong. Yes, I mean, so this, and, and, and there are lots of reasons for that. There were specific problems around shy Tories in 1992, where, which is why they've introduced, you know, adjusting back to the last vote. But there is a speci- but that's why you've had the Tory underestimation. The Labour overestimation, there are a couple of problems. One, Labour's electoral coalition is, has more people in it who are more likely to go, I will vote, and then don't, which is partly because young people vote in a more rational way in safe seats. Uh, so if you're young, you are more likely to vote if you live in a marginal than if you live in a, a safe seat. And also, the young voters are not evenly distributed throughout uh, the country. You know, ethnic minorities, etc. Et but also, and this is the crucial factor, graduates. 
uh, graduates are much more likely to vote for Labour or the Liberal Democrats. They are much more likely to answer polls. And that the graduate thing actually doesn't matter more than the age problem, right? The 7% of, of, of elderly people who are saying, I will vote Labour, are overwhelmingly graduates, right? Yeah. Which means that the difficulty is always, and you're like, oh, this is a representative sample in terms of my, my age to young, but it turned out there are too many graduates in it, right? So the Labour vote is very hard to count. Lots of pollsters are very worried about it. In 1997, they thought they had fixed their 1992 problem. They mostly hadn't, but because the Labour... Because they got the result so, right, yeah. that's, that's all that people remember, right? It's when you call a result wrong that people remember. I also think that the YouGov regional polling um, was really interesting, and it suggests that... Yeah, Actually, the headline figure isn't that helpful because you're not running a contest. It's not like French, the last round of the French presidential election where the highest percentage wins, right? It really matters where your vote is. And Labour are, you know, ahead in London. Great and brilliant, you know, inner London seats, but they've already got lots of inner London seats in which they've got thumping great majorities. When those become thumping plus, that doesn't necessarily help them if they go backwards in a load of other places. So I guess our summary is we think the polls probably are wrong because they always have been. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast hosted by me, Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Indie Book and mixed by James Shields. There are still a few tickets left for my Trump event on Tuesday, which is at Conway Hall at 7.30. Does Trump threaten the world? It'd be a particularly interesting time to talk about this, given that um, (laughs) everything is going a bit peak-tong over in America. So go to newstatesman.com forward slash events to find out more. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
ACAST.com.